0: The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician.
1: Hi, I'm Eric Trumez. I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon in Austin, Texas. Uh, We're together today to talk about patients uh, ability to get information on back disorders from social media and from the internet. We know there's a wide array of information sources out there. Even in 2002, there were more than 30,000 websites offering medical information, and we know the quality of that information, and we know the bias that can be available in commercial websites is high, and our topic today is how do we address these sources of information when patients come to us, and how do we uh, educate them properly in terms of their back care? Things that you might not know or patients typically won't tell us that they've been online and they won't tell us when the information they get online is different from what they get from us. Additionally, uh, often they'll rate the information they got online more highly than the information they get from us. Uh, Over time, social media has become a bigger and bigger influencer in this area and so our question for our panel today is really how do you address these issues with your patients? I'll start with DJ Kennedy. He's a professor and chair of physical medicine rehabilitation at Vanderbilt. Do you see patients coming in and trying to argue with you or discuss with you information they got online? And how does that fit into your practice?
0: Uh, clearly, um, patients come with a variety of background experiences, whether it's online or from friends that they bring to the appointment. Um, it's often very challenging to tease out what effects this have on them. So, for instance, sometimes they will go online and read about the broad differential of spine pain, and they will then be convinced that they have this very bad tumor or something else going on. I I also find, especially with social media, there's a lot of really good intentions out there from people that are posting when it's not a commercial entity. Uh, People are trying to help and, and find their connection, but in doing so, what happens Our patients are seeing maybe the non-responders or the people that are taking time that have had a worse outcome and now it's putting that as a possibility in their mind. So, you know, I frequently will talk to patients about what their, what their concerns are. Um, uh, one of the lines I will say to people frequently is, you know, a lot of people have back pain, not anyone has your back and, you know, you know, all, your, all these online will say, yes, do this for back pain. Well, it's a, a lot of different diseases, and you have this now, and that helps guide where we're gonna go read and deal with. So it is, uh, it is challenging.
1: We also have Kano uh, Meyer, who's a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist in Austin. Kano, uh, our group recently looked at the uh, use of social media for patients with scoliosis, and I think a lot of that might apply to other areas of back care. What do you think the role of social media is today?
2: Well, I think fundamentally I agree with some of the points made by Dr. Kennedy that in this increasingly busy world, we're all looking for social connection. But what is lost is that other people and other stories about back really doesn't address that person. What we found in the research is about half of websites are, are um, advocating by someone who has no degree and is not a clinician for a commercial entity that they are associated with and they tend to link out to uh, th- things that have not been evaluated by physicians or the government for safety or efficacy.
1: As we looked at both our social media uh, hits on scoliosis and our websites, it was interesting to me to see you know, just the breadth of information. We specifically avoided back pain and radiculopathy as topics only because there were way too many results to actually analyze. But even within scoliosis, the number of people that were aggressively marketing uh, unproven therapies as opposed to more traditional management was much higher than I would have thought. and even for those academic sites, which were much more likely to be accurate, uh, wouldn't you agree often the language was at a level that would not be typically easily digested by our patients and their families?
2: I couldn't agree more. We found at the, um, we found high clinical uh, clinician inter-rater reliability, meaning the clinicians agreed with the quality of the content but when we rated it, we found it rated at an 11th or 12th grade reading level and not the 4th to 6th grade reading level that we typically need to keep for efficient patient-facing materials.
1: Dr. Kennedy, if someone comes in and wants to talk to you about an unproven treatment, let's say stem cell injections into the disk space, They've read about it. They've seen all sorts of testimonials that swear by this treatment. They come in believers in some ways, and it's hard to unconvince someone. What's your approach?
0: Yeah, it's always always challenging, right? We're all as physicians trying to do what is best for our patients. And there are a number of websites that are really, by other patients, trying to, to do what's right. The hard part is those are intermixed with websites that are trying to sell somebody something. So, you know, our duty when I am uh, treating a patient is to do right by them. And the first thing you have to do is establish a rapport with the patient. Uh, if, If the patient doesn't trust you, if they don't, you know, they've maybe spent hours reading about something and if they don't buy into what you're doing, if you haven't examined them, if you haven't gone through the disease process with them, they are looking and trying to find who to trust. And um, so I do think that establishing trust is is the right way to go, and then having an open, honest conversation with somebody, meaning there are clearly unproven treatments that may have uh, limited effect, may be dangerous, may not be, and you know really coming through and having that open discussion with people because we haven't solved the epidemic of back pain, right? And uh, to think that you know what I have is the answer for everybody would be naive. But if I can come through and establish that and, and have the patient truly believe, which is true, that I am on their side and want nothing but the best for them, I'm hoping that will help overcome what they have read. Um, it's just a powerful thing to overcome because they're seeing usually an advertisement, testimonial, often from a celebrity, and who knows what else went into that. and. and knows what actually was going on with their back at the time if
1: it represented their true diagnosis
0: correct so it is very challenging and and the the really the most frustrating ones to me are are not maybe the people that we do with conditions that we have difficulty treating the discogenic back pain where we don't have a great solution the ones that are much more concerning to me are the people that really have something truly dangerous a cervical myelopathy and they are then looking for something else to, in the effort of avoiding surgery. Sure. And even as a rehab doctor, there, there are people that very clearly need surgery or need a different treatment. And those are the people that are the, the most concerning to me that they're getting this uh, misinformation at times.
1: Thanks. Just as we wrap up, you know, I think uh, I would agree with all your points. Uh, I think two areas where we're not great are one is overcoming the fear people have of our treatments, whether it's interventional or surgical right. management, and two, you know, we feel the need to be scientifically honest and say we don't know, and that is unfortunately in a lot of settings just not adequate. I, I find that you know, as physicians, our take-home message should be. We should ask our patients what information they already have on their diagnosis. Make sure it's the correct diagnosis they've been looking up and make sure that we're not arguing against a previous position. And as we do that, it's useful to have two to three websites kind of in your pocket that you can offer the patient that are likely to give them quality, unbiased information. Uh, NAS has the knowyourback.org, there's other websites that are similarly well-written, well-researched, well-balanced and being able to come back at them with that, to me, is very similar to having a written opioid policy. It becomes less personal when this is the policy of the practice, and therefore, patients can absorb it in their own time in a less stressful environment than the doctor encounter, and it tends to help out. Any final thoughts?
2: No, I agree with you that in a world where we are inundated with information and people, uh, coming across and sounding very sure of themselves they don't always have confidence in the scientifically honest way of admitting what we don't know and i think the way to often counter that as we've found from our research and now in our growing practice is being empathetic and not trying to argue against it but trying to argue in the patient's best interests that you are representing their interest for safety and for efficacy. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. Thanks.